As a matter of fact, there is a theory out there that small amounts of radiation are actually good for your health. It sounds crazy and counterintuitive to the prevailing belief system, which is that radiation is deadly and will give you cancer and will give your children and your grandchildren cancer and so on. It's simply not true. I mean, it's it's a, uh, it's a it's a useful fairy tale for people that don't like nuclear energy. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the new nuclear technologies out there. And I've got a guest on who is a key player in the new nuclear technology arena. As always, if you like what you hear, please hit like and share it with your friends and spread the word. Canon Bryan is a financial professional with over 25 years of experience in various aspects of the finance industry. Mr. Bryan was a founding shareholder in Terrestrial Energy, where he serves as Chief Financial Operator. Terrestrial Energy is developing advanced nuclear power plants. He was also a founding shareholder of Neocorp, which is developing uh, the largest niobium deposit in North America, and Uranium Energy Corp, where he served as VP Corporate Development. He has also served as Chief Financial Officer on boards of directors for private and public companies in Canada and the USA. Mr. Bryan completed his professional studies in accounting with the Certified General Accountants Association of Canada. Mr. Bryan, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks for inviting me. So the reason I invited you here is I'd like to explain to our listeners, and I think they're, they're interested. I've been going over different nuclear technologies and the pros and cons of nuclear and the energy um, system in the world and nuclear as a solution to climate change. And one of the things that has gotten a lot of press lately is all the new nuclears, the SMRs, the small modular reactors, and the thorium, and the different uh, salts that are being used. And as, in your role at Terrestrial Energy, you are uh, the vanguard of new nuclear. Could you explain for our listeners what the, the Terrestrial Energy reactor technology is? Sure, to the extent that I can. I'm not a technical person. I'm, uh, I have no scientific training. I'm, a, I'm the, uh, the financial officer of the company. But I do have, I obviously have some understanding of how my company's technology works. Um, so I will try to provide a, a brief, brief overview of that. Uh, so it is uh, a molten salt reactor technology. Uh, it's called the Integral Molten Salt Reactor, or IMSR. And it's based on... Uh, a set of designs that was developed by the Oak Ridge National Lab, principally back in the 1950s and 60s, uh, culminating in a uh, prototype uh, experiment called the Molten Salt Reactor Experiment, or MSRE. They operated one of these molten salt reactors for uh, almost five years, uh, it, was, it was a small system, but it really proved a lot of, of, the, uh, of the design claims. And uh, in principle, uh, the way it works is uh, it, it utilizes a uranium a fuel uh, kernel, which is uh, chemically bound to its own coolant, which is fluoride, uh, uh, in the form of a liquid fluoride salt. So the uranium fluoride 
operates as a liquid fluoride salt in a naturally high temperature environment as a liquid at 700 degrees Celsius inside the reactor core. So this is quite different from conventional reactor systems, which use a solid uranium fuel and which is cooled by water. Uh, which is a eminently less chemically stable coolant uh, and with a, a pretty lousy thermal range. So um, fluoride salt has a, is massively chemically stable, neutronically stable and isotopically stable and uh, has a, a phase range in the liquid phase of nearly a thousand degrees C. So it, it makes a a much, much better coolant. And the fact that the coolant is virtually impossible to separate from the fuel means that a loss of coolant accident, which is a very bad thing in the nuclear world, is it has no meaning in, in our system. Uh, the, the only way you could um, uh, separate the coolant from the fuel in this case would be by using some kind of really nasty reagent like... Uh, nitric acid or something. So uh, that, that's out of the question. So that really describes one of the principal safety factors, uh, safety elements of the design, which is that the loss of coolant accident is, is, become, is rendered uh, meaningless. And uh, the fact that it can operate at high temperature means uh, that you don't, uh, that it operates at high temperature naturally, means that you don't have to add a whole bunch of pressure inside the reactor core to uh, artificially increase the temperature uh, to engineer the increase of the temperature of the coolant like you do in, with like you have to do with water uh, so no pressure in the reactor vessel equals a very good thing uh, because uh, you're taking away physical forces that represent a safety challenge uh, reactor the reactor is, itself is small that means it could be it doesn't have to be fabricated on site so all of those types of design or uh, construction challenges are, 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 are removed and, and the costs of all of those engineered safety systems are eliminated. So it sounds like a streamlined version. Yeah, and that the, uh, what the technology or what the reactor system delivers, in fact, uh, is not electricity, but hot molten salt. Uh, it's the exact same kind of salt that you would find, for example, in a CSP or a concentrated solar plant. Um, and that hot salt goes to the customer. The customer can do whatever they want with it. They can make electricity, which they most likely would do in, in many cases, or they can use it in an industrial process that requires a lot of heat. That's one of the, the key things that we need to replace if we're trying to displace fossil fuels, of course, is the high temperature industrial processing. And obviously, if you're making electricity with your solar panels and your wind, it's not as easy to do high temperature industrial processes. And that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, in replacing fossil fuels is getting to the temperatures you need to melt steel and, and, and do all the sorts of things that people do with coal and, and, and fossil fuels, right? Well, that is, that is right. A lot of people don't realize it, but the industrial sector is responsible for roughly 30% of global emissions and it's 100% powered by fossil fuels, and 
there's really no known substitute right now uh, to make that heat cleanly and cost competitively for fossil fuels is just something that doesn't exist. Uh, it's never existed since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution until now. Now you have these high temperature systems and IMSR is not the only one. There are, there are others that deliver high temperature uh, power. And that is promising because it, it means that it, for the first time we can contemplate uh, an industrial economy with, with primary manufacturing at the scale that we need it without dumping massive amounts of CO2 into the atmosphere. Indeed. And does, does the molten salt reactor technology have an advantage over, uh, say, your typical uh, light water reactor technology in this regard? It does, yes, it's because it, it, it operates at a higher temperature. That's the, that's the key reason. So uh, conventional light water reactor systems, I guess, would normally, because they have water as a coolant, they would normally be operating at 100 degrees C. But uh, because of what I mentioned before about how they have to increase the temperature using pressure uh, to make the electricity, they, they actually operated around uh, 290 degrees C. Uh, but only after adding 160 atmospheres of pressure into the reactor core. So that's their, uh, so 290 degrees C um, uh, is, that's conventional. And that's just not enough for, for thermal processing in, in industry. You need, you know, 700, 800 degrees to do any sort of melting of metal, right? It's, uh, well, it's enough for some things. So when you look at the, the world of industrial processing uh, for all of the, like there's thousands of different things that we do industrially, uh, and some of them require relatively low temperatures, uh, like pulp and paper, I think, is, is relatively low. Uh, but uh, like things, things like steel, yes, good example, uh, typically 1600, in the neighborhood of 1600 C. Ooh, yeah, so, that's high. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty high. So it's a lot more difficult to get there with uh, a 290 degree C output than it would be with, say, you know, 600, 650, or some of these other uh, advanced reactor systems that I, th I think operated around 1,000 C. So, yeah, that, that's definitely uh, an advantage. So, and, and so the proof is that conventional nuclear systems have never been involved in industrial heat production uh, commercially. Sure, sure. So a lot of the... Um the people who have thought about this, and it's a very small minority of the people that are thinking about replacing fossil fuels, replacing the industrial heat applications have suggested that a hydrogen economy might uh, do the job. Does the existence of an ISR reactor uh, supplant the need for hydrogen in the new economy? I, I would never use that word, supplant. I mean, in my view, we need every plausible solution that we can possibly throw at the problem if we want to mitigate climate change and, and energy poverty, uh, the, the dual challenges. It's not going to re be replacing, let's say, hydrogen fuel cell cars. Uh, it, it, uh, but on the other hand, uh, an IMSR, its high temperature output could be used to do the chemical processing required to make synthetic transport fuel, like synthetic gasoline, which is drop-in substitutable and carbon neutral. So in that sense, oh yes, then you, can, you could compete with hydrogen uh, or you could uh, um, supplement uh, hydrogen, which is what I prefer to say, that's 
I don't think there's there's any I don't think there's any technology any energy technology out there which is just going to totally monopolize delivering energy that that's uh, I don't think that's realistic. So, but uh, it certainly it can be it can supplement hydrogen. It'd be a, it'd be a very good supplement, and also it can make hydrogen. What what I guess the question is what type of uranium does your reactor require to run? What sort of um, enhancement or enrichment? is needed uh, for your uh, process. Yeah, the good news is it takes advantage of existing supply chains. And uh, for example, fuel, which is already uh, well known and established uh, in industry supply chains and by regulators, and that is low enriched uranium. The level of enrichment that's used in our fuel is, is exactly the same level that or less than what has been used in, in the nuclear energy industry globally, commercially, civilly for the last uh, 60 years. So that we're, not, we're, not, we're not reinventing the wheel on, on fuel. Uh, I think every other generation for a system, uh, which is currently in, in development, um, does require a level of enrichment, which is above the norm, uh, that norm being five to 6%. Anything above that um, is, is referred to as high assay, low enriched uranium. It gets a little confusing, all these different distinctions, but uh, we use standard assay, low enriched uranium, which is up to 5%, and everything over 5% is considered to be high assay, low enriched uranium. There, at the moment, there is no commercial supply chain for high assay, low enriched uranium. So uh, that's five to 20%. Uh, you can certainly understand why they would want to <clears throat> monitor all of these levels of enrichment <laughs> very closely, uh, owing to the fact that, well, if you enrich too much, then you've got bomb-grade fuel on your hands. That's always a risk, and, and, and it's something that causes pause when you're looking at these new Gen 4 reactors. Obviously, they can do a lot in terms of burning up a lot of fuel and being more efficient and producing less waste if they're using more of the uranium, but if you have high enrichment, then you have a risk of proliferation and, and security becomes a, a bigger factor. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this is good news. Yeah. Um, what about waste production? Does this produce the same amount of waste as a typical uh, light water reactor for the same amount of fuel, or is it? Yeah, in a once through cycle, uh, essentially yes, the answer is yes. Uh, the IMSR has a tremendous capability for taking the fuel that is uh, left in the reactor core after its uh, limited life lifetime of seven years and potentially uh, reloading it into another reactor core for another seven-year campaign. Uh, we're not doing this on our initial design because it's uh, it's a bit too complicated regulatorily uh, to get through all that. but. Uh, uh, certainly for fu- future iterations from a chemical and, and industrial uh, and practical s- sense, uh, this is totally possible. Uh, and in fact, there's a nice paper uh, which has uh, been written uh, by or co-written by Dr. David LeBlanc, who's our uh, chief technology officer. It's on our website if anybody is interested in reading that. We can achieve um, uh, what's called a closed cycle of uh, for fuel, which is really, really exciting because it means that we have much, much higher fuel utilization and much, much smaller 
waste piles. And that's really, I, I think that's what the world is, is seeking, crying out for these days when it comes to nuclear energy. Indeed, indeed. So, so what does that mean, a closed cycle for fuel? Can you maybe explain a little more about what that means to ours? <laughs> uh, we're stretching the limits of my technical knowledge, but uh, uh, basically it uh, basically means you just, we can use it again. Just keep using it again and again until, um, until the fuel is utilized uh, to a very great degree. And that means that the end product is a lot less radioactive uh, than otherwise. Well, actually, this may sound counterintuitive, but it's actually much more radioactive, but for a lot, lot less time. So the conventional waste is very low radioactivity, but for a very long time. Uh, Half-life of, of plutonium-239 is 24,000 years, and the, the rule of thumb is 10 half-lives to get back to background. So you're, you're sort of looking at you're looking at a waste pile whose most radiotoxic element is theoretically radiotoxic or more radiotoxic than background uh, than the way we found it in the Earth for about two hundred forty thousand years. I mean, in reality, it's not radiotoxic enough to hurt anybody after probably about I don't know probably a few hundred, but the that's not the way the world looks at it. So with the with the fuel that is is mostly utilized, what you have left is what's called the fission products, the longest half-life of which is 30, around 30 years. So after 300 years, 10 half-lives, you have something which is back to background. And 300 years storage of, of radioactive waste is a massively more tractable, tractable engineering problem than 240,000 years of storage. Indeed. And because you're, you're, are you burning more of the uranium then, uh, or be getting more efficiency out of the, the mined fuel? That's exactly it. Yes. Again, this is, a, this is a future permutation of our design. This is not, this is not embedded in our, our first commercial demonstration, uh, which we're developing now, but it's, it's definitely a reality for the future and one that I think is very, very exciting. Indeed. That does sound interesting. So tell me a little bit about the company Terrestrial Energy. How long has it been around? What's the development roadmap to get this to commercial operation? So myself, Dr. LeBlanc, and uh, our CEO, Simon Irish, we co-founded the company back in 2012. Uh, and from three people, we have now grown to over 100. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Yes, it's uh, so far been a very fun journey. We've been going through the pre-licensing, the formal pre-licensing process with the Canadian nuclear regulator called the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. The outcome of this big process is uh, something which is very commercially valuable for us as a company and also, I think, notionally for the rest of the SMR uh, sector. And, and that is a, a formal opinion from the regulator about the safety of the design, uh, which is not site-specific, uh, but nevertheless a, 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 a very valuable uh, formal assessment uh, from a world-class regulator. So that's, that's very valuable. Uh, most recently, uh, we have been working with Ontario Power Generation, which is the largest electric utility company in Canada. Uh, they, OPG, uh, began a 
technology selection process over two years ago. Uh, they were looking at around 20 different SMR designs. And as of last October, they announced that the technology process, technology selection process has now been narrowed down to three. Uh, and terrestrial energy is one of those three. And one or two or three, uh, we don't know how many, uh, of those designs uh, will be formally selected for a major capital development at, the, uh, at OPG's Darlington uh, Nuclear Generating Station, uh, which is near Toronto in Canada. Okay. So uh, uh, we have been working uh, very hard since that announcement was made with OPG to uh, try to meet all of their uh, information requirements uh, for this technology selection process. Uh, the decision will be made this year. We will find out, uh, and that will uh, obviously have a big impact on our, our development timeline. Uh, but with or without OPG, uh, terrestrial energy plans to have a commercial operating nuclear power plant, IMSR nuclear power plant, before the year 2030. We're su we successfully applied for a $1.2 billion loan guarantee from the U.S. federal government, so which can be applied to a construction project uh, in the United States. So we're unique in that respect. No, Nobody else has been successful in, in that particular program. Wow, that's great. What is the size of a reactor that you want to start out with? What, uh, how many mega gigawatts do you, are you sizing this for? Well, it is an SMR and, uh, or a small, small modular reactor. SMR is defined by a system which is 300 megawatts electrical or less. And so, yes, our system fits into that definition. The, the system that we want to build initially is 200 megawatts electrical. Uh, it's about 440, uh, 440 megawatts thermal. That's a very good efficiency. Uh, yeah, not bad. Thanks to the high temperature. Yeah, the high temperature helps with that. And so, you know, we seek to build a one a power plants with, with one or more of those reactor cores. Uh, and uh, the system is designed, or the power plant is designed, so that there can be multiple reactors operating at uh, simultaneously. And you said that the um, the lifetime of a fuel cycle is seven years? It's not the fuel cycle, it's the reactor itself. So the reactor is a, is a disposable core. It operates for what seems to be a pretty short period of time, seven years. So we designed a system which uh, could never get anywhere close to bumping up against these uh, you know these degradation issues. So a lot, in fact, a lot of the criticism that molten salt reactor uh, designs get is, uh, or that molten salt reactor technology gets, is that oh, that the the materials uh, would come under too much stress, and they they would not uh, they would not be able to handle that stress. They would degrade to the point of becoming dysfunctional. So the solution, elegantly developed by Dr. LeBlanc is to have a limited lifetime for the core so that it, that, that would never become an issue. Uh, so once the reactor core has finished its seven-year campaign, there's another reactor core unused, a new one sitting right beside it, 
uh, in the operating bay, bay next door, ready to be connected. Do you have a, a disposal plan in place for the uh, used cores? Or can they be handled, uh, put in a deep geological repository? Uh, well, we're, we don't really speak publicly about, our, about waste handling after the life of the plant. Uh, but while the plant is operating, uh, the cores are, are deposited into, into, into cooling bays. And then you just pop in a new core. So each, each it, it doesn't refuel for seven years, it just operates continuously? Yep, most of the fuel is loaded in uh, before the reactor begins its operation. And, uh, but throughout the life of the core, there is some tiny amount of uh, so-called top-up fuel, which is loaded into the system. Very little, uh, sort of on the order of a couple of liters a day, I think it is. Ah, okay. You, are you taking fuel out at the same time, old fuel somehow? No, absolutely not. Fuel never leaves the core, unless, once again, in a future design, we do a close, close cycle. But uh, no, to, the, the way it's designed now, the, that's kind of the point. It's a closed, sealed system, which is never opened. That seems like a good a good idea. So, what do you see as the technical risks from getting from here to an operating commercial sized reactor for this system? Is it are there any potential showstoppers for you? I mean, how how far have you gone so far in, in prototyping? For one thing, have you have you built scale models, or do you plan to build scale models first and then scale up, or, or where are you in that process? So the, the, the wonderful thing about molten salt reactors is that there, there were prototypes built and operated uh, by the Americans uh, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We're not called upon to do to do that to build a full scale operating prototype. We don't need to. It's already been prototyped. So, but what we do, what we are required to do, is we have to show the results of, of those experiments, and we can't use the data, the historical data, uh, with the regulator. That's just not the way it works. So, in essence, we are now called upon to recreate all of those experimental outcomes. Uh, fortunately, we know what the results are before we even start, but it does mean that we have to recreate all of those experiments. So that's the expensive bit. Uh, and we call it validation and verification, similar to R&D, except that we already know the outcomes. Uh, so, uh, so we're not creating a full-scale prototype, but we have to basically recreate all the various different pieces of a prototype separately. Uh, in terms of challenges, you know, there is no showstoppers that we have. Uh, again, a lot of the, uh, the whole design philosophy is to have a system which is a collection of known industrial materials and processes and that have well-established supply chains and regulatory history. So that's great because you know, it means that we're not going to be too surprised by anything. Uh, but uh, the, the, the one thing that's proven to be probably the most challenging for us is to find the right type of graphite uh, moderator uh, because uh, um, there, there hasn't been a lot of use of graphite as a moderator in recent times in the nuclear energy industry, uh, although there are still several systems operating in the UK and Russia which do, uh, but 
the uh, a lot of the expertise uh, that was used to fabricate that graphite is uh, uh, long gone. So that is something that we have to recreate, uh, and we have to you know scrounge for the few remnants of expertise that still does exist, uh, and uh, and and try to formulate that into a, a supply chain. So that's uh, yes, that is tricky, but it's not a showstopper by any means. I recall hearing that the Russians also have um, uh, a molten salt reactor or two operating. Are are you aware of those? No. No? Okay. No, that's not true. Uh, What they do have is they have a a, a commercial-scale fast breeder reactor uh, called the BN800, BN uh, which is actually, well, it it was uh, commissioned in 2016, and that is a Generation 4 system. It's the first... And so far, the only Generation 4 system operating at commercial scale in the world mm-hmm. uh, is based on the BN, uh, I believe, 600, mm-hmm. which has been operating since the 80s. And it is being used as the model for the BN 1200, which is, uh, I believe, uh, uh, intended to be a commercial system, which they want to deploy around the world. So these are Generation 4 systems, uh, you know, and, and I think it's a as far as I'm concerned, a brilliant proof point that Generation 4 nuclear systems are not some some unicorn technology which is 20, 30, 40 years in the future. It is here today. It has been operating for five years. There is an, an operating history, and there are probably about six or seven other Generation 4 technologies that will have a commercial operating power plant before the end of this decade. So that goes to, uh, that goes to um, counterpoint all of the uh, critics of, of advanced nuclear technology that like to say that, that these technologies are 20, 30, 40 years away. It's absolutely not the case. So I'm interested in, in, the, in the licensing requirements that you've had to uh, navigate through. You, you say you started in 2012 and you've been working with CNSC for five years to get a judgment on the safety of your design. And from there on out, you're looking at another uh, eight or so years to get to an operating system. Are the licensing requirements reasonable, do you think? Are they overbearing? How quickly could you put your technology into practice without arbitrary licensing delays? Uh, yeah, if, we, if there were, if there are a world that did not have nuclear regulation, uh, well, first of all, I wouldn't want to live in that world, but let's say that, that, that there were such a place. Uh, uh, my engineering friends have told me that, uh, yeah, in fact, you could, you could clap up a IMSR power plant in probably about four months. So, uh, but... Again, you know, regulation exists for a reason. I mean, it's a, uh, you can't just uh, have a free-for-all when it comes to nuclear technology. Uh, I think that goes without saying. Uh, so, but, you know, if, if you asked me my, my opinion. Yes, my personal opinion is that, that the level of regulation that exists uh, for nuclear energy is actually too much. It's, it's uh, I think it goes to a degree which is beyond, way beyond what would be required to have safe, to achieve safety. And particular, in one area in particular that really kind of bothers me, uh, that is the, the level of 
radio, radioactive exposure, uh, radiation exposure. Uh, the nuclear regulators of the world have, uh, have and the health physics uh, people of the world have taken the view that no level of radiation exposure is healthy uh, and that that is simply not borne out by the data. It's simply not true. The dose limits that are imposed on us, you, me, the, the human population, are orders of magnitude lower than what would actually be safe. And so you might think, well, that's probably a good thing. Uh, you know, they're, they're making extra special careful that we're, that we're all going to be safe from radiation. But actually, I say no. This, this comes with a lot of, when you overregulate by so much, uh, it creates massive unnecessary costs and I'm talking billions and billions of dollars a year, which are dumped into, you know, prevention of of uh, radiation exposure to people that is not at all dangerous. And those billions of dollars could be used for something else, uh, medical care, you know, scientific development, whatever you think would be a good use of, of capital resources. Uh, I do not believe those funds are... are are being well utilized in fighting something which is has zero chance of being dangerous to anybody. So in that sense, yes, I think that the regulation is is way offside and, and uh, making far too many demands on a technology which is uh, which could be safe at, at uh, so much you know potentially higher levels of radiation. So as a matter of fact, there is a theory out there that. Um, Small amounts of radiation are actually good for your health. <laughs> it sounds crazy and counterintuitive to the, the prevailing belief system, which is that radiation is deadly and it'll give you cancer and it'll give your children and your grandchildren cancer and so on. And <laughs> it's simply not true. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a fairy tale. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a useful fairy tale for people that don't like nuclear energy. It's been built up, I think, over the years by the anti-nuclear groups and and push to make nuclear um, because because you know without this nuclear is so much more cheap than any other energy energy form that why would anyone burn fossil fuels right mm -hmm. uh, the fact is that these arbitrary cost structures are create a dichotomy of, of regulatory regimes you have nuclear where you you know you have to have as low as reasonably possible you can't kill anybody and that's great Right? We don't want to kill anybody. We want it to be safe. But then somebody can go and build a gas plant in a year. And they don't need to have you know, they don't need to have, you know, all of this licensing. Well, okay, so you're gonna be killing how many people per year from your fossil fuel air pollution? Nobody asks these questions. They're allowed to do it. It's it's a huge double standard that has been put in place by the lobbying industry, and I think it's 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 dangerous for society as well because this doesn't even take into account the climate change impacts of delaying nuclear uh, and and keeping the fossil fuels burning. Mm -hmm. Yes. So yeah, don't don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, yeah, no, it represents a gross misallocation of of resources, and 
Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the fossil fuel plants uh, or cars or any kind of machine that uses fossil fuels is never called upon to, to maintain the same standard that nuclear energy is called upon uh, to uh, adhere to, which is zero, you know, zero harm to anybody, which, is, which it totally achieves year in and year out, every single year, all but one, 1986. Uh, every year since it's, uh, uh, the inception of the civilian energy uh, industry in 1956, uh, for, so what is that, 65 years ago, 64 of those years, it has achieved the zero harm to anybody. Yeah. Uh, with the exception of 1986, Chernobyl, okay, 32 people were harmed. Uh, in fact, killed by uh, by uh, by an accident. But you know, uh, if you look at all the the thousands of coal plants and uh, ships that burn bunk oil uh, that circle the globe hundreds of times over every day, or the airplanes that the thousands of flights every day, I mean, are they ever called upon to do zero harm to to anybody? No. Imagine what our society would cost if every fossil fuel burning application had to capture its waste exhaust and bury it in a geological repository. <laughs> Imagine how the cost would shift. <laughs> well, we would not have an industrial society if that were the case. <laughs> we, 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 would be, uh, we would be living in the, in the Iron Age, the, stuff, uh, the Bronze Age. <laughs> so with all of this... Um, all of these shackles of regulations, um, how much are you envisioning a terrestrial energy 200 megawatt electrical generator is going to cost in the future? What are you projecting, you know, billion dollars per reactor? The principal goal of the company is to develop an energy system which is affordable. Uh, not just affordable for the 32 nuclear nations of the world, but to all nations, including smaller economies. The way conventional nuclear is done today, in most everywhere except China and, and Russia and maybe Korea, is great big massive facilities, uh, multiples of gigawatts of electric power capacity, costing in the neighborhood of eight to ten, eight to ten billion dollars per gigawatt of, of built-out capacity, and requiring anywhere from eight to twenty years to build, uh, that is not a, a robust economic f uh, formula. I think I think China is doing a little bit better. Yes, well, I as I that was my qualifier, not not including China, Russia, and maybe Korea, right? So China is routinely building nuclear power facilities for under $4 a watt, in most cases under $3 a watt, uh, since uh, the turn of the century. So uh, about 72 nuclear power plants have been commissioned since the year 2000. 49 of those have been from China and Russia, and, and vast majority of those have been uh, sub $3 a watt cap capital cost. So that is a pretty different, and the construction times are also totally acceptable and from a from a private sector capital perspective, so but uh, so notwithstanding the the exceptions to the rule, uh, it's a, it's a economic calculus that just doesn't work. So terrestrial energy was created to to try to recreate the formula, 
Uh, and that formula is building a nuclear facility for under a billion dollars, uh, being built and licensed on a timely basis. One of the aspects of the design that will that might help us do that is the M in SMR modular. It means that the reactors can be built in a centralized assembly line facility, similar to, let's say, uh, the Boeing facility in Everett, Washington. Uh, now, that is a, that's it just so happens to be the largest industrial facility in the world. But IMSRs are orders of magnitude less complicated to build than a Boeing jet. So we could have an industrial facility, which is an assembly line manufacturing facility, where those reactors are built and they're small enough that they can be shipped to the power plant, uh, the nuclear building, which is built you know, near the where the power is needed, uh, near, a, near a suburb or wherever it is. And the manufacturing facility itself can be regulated, similar to the way that Boeing jets are regulated at the manufacturing facility. So that, that represents the potential for some big efficiencies uh, that are now becoming possible in the nuclear energy industry. If we're successful in, in achieving our, our, our plans, we will build nuclear power plants around the world for under a billion dollars, and we will build these plants in um, under four years. And we believe that that represents an attractive economic proposition for private sector capital. And of course, those power plants will operate for at least 56 years, maybe much longer. And uh, so you, you sort of pay off your capital in the first few years, and then you have a cash machine, a cash elephant, which is just vomiting cash for decades and, and delivering a very reliable, low-cost power for decades. And is the, um, the core replacement, uh, what fraction of the value would that be? It's minuscule. Uh, it's uh, These reactor cores are tremendously inexpensive to build, which is precisely why that is the design formula. I mean, it represents just, it's, it's not even considered part of the capital cost. It's, uh, well, let me put it to you this way. A conventional nuclear power plant, they have to uh, reload new fuel assemblies into their uh, reactors, uh, generally speaking, around every 18 months. And a full reactor load of fuel assemblies costs on the order of t- $200 million. Uh, well, the, the cost of it, and so that fuel would ha- have a useful life of about 18 to 24 months, let's say, or 18 to 36 months, let's say. Well, our, our replaceable reactor cores uh, would be a small fraction of that, and they would, and they last for seven years. Wow. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it Initially, I can see how the idea of of replacing the whole reactor core every seven years would be jarring and people might be tempted to think that is, from an economic perspective, not tenable. But as a matter of fact, it is eminently tenable uh, because they are so inexpensive to build. Interesting. That's really cool. Well, I think we're getting to the end of our time slot here. And so I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about terrestrial energy. This has been a, a learning experience for me because I'm, you know, I'm not studied very much on these in these new uh, 
reactor technologies or or old new reactor technologies i guess as as this one is yeah that's 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 the truer statement we live in a very different world than the one we lived in in the, in the 60s and 70s in the cold war and having dual purpose civilian nuclear energy program is no longer relevant indeed well, i wish you all the luck in your development and i hope you can get these things to market as quickly as as the law will allow <laughs> well, thanks very much. I appreciate that. Thank you for joining us in The Rational View. Thanks for having me. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view.